As we come close to the end of our study of David, I hope we have a better understanding of what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Clearly, it doesn't mean that we live a life of flawless perfection. David was a man who struggled with sin, just like you and I. His heart was prone to wander, but it was also quick to repent. David agonized over the impact of his sin, and actually we're going to see more evidence of that again this morning. In some ways, I hope the the story of David kind of takes him off the pedestal and puts him on common ground so that we can relate to his life and learn from his example. It's important for us to see a heart that truly does long to be aligned with God. A heart that is yielded to the Spirit. A heart that is committed to God's Word. Todd Wagner at Watermark in Dallas said, Don't look for perfection. Look for direction. Look for the way in which David's heart was inclined towards the Lord. That's the attribute of David that I hope that we can see in the example that I, that I hope that we choose to follow. But even more important than what we see in the heart of David is what we see in the heart of God. Because in the midst of all of David's imperfections, God was always, always faithful. In fact, I want you to think back to our study in Exodus about this time last year. And I want you to recall the encounter that Moses had with God when he went up to the mountain a second time. You'll remember he came down the first time holding the Ten Commandments given to him by God only to find the people of Israel in sinful rebellion. So what does he do? He destroys those tablets and then has to go back up to meet with God once again to figure out where to go from there. And it was during this encounter with God where where God spoke to Moses and revealed his heart. I want to remind you of what he said In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, listen to this. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. What this is telling us is that there is mercy in the midst of God's wrath. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. Oh, but he is so quick to forgive, slow to anger. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Remember, a broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. He abounds in loving kindness. He is quick to forgive. Now, if you think about what that verse said and what we've looked at in the life of David, do you not see that being played out over and over again? And it's important to understand that how God relates to David is exactly how he relates to you and I. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
we may be filled with inconsistencies and inadequacies, but God is perfect and he is faithful. So with that in mind, let's pick up in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, verse 1. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. It says, Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now I'm going to stop there because it seems as if this verse just contradicted everything I told you, Right? There's got to be more to this story about what's going on here, and in fact, there is. So turn, if you keep your finger here, and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So it's to your right, past 1 and 2 Kings, you'll find 1 Chronicles. So turn to chapter 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Job and the princes of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me word that I may know their number. This goes back to something I said last week. In the Hebrew, Hebrew mind, God is completely sovereign over all things. And since he is ultimately in control, he is ultimately responsible. But let me be clear. God did not tempt David towards sin. God allowed Satan to do so. But God does not tempt anyone towards sin. The reason I know that is because of what we see in James chapter 1, verse 13. It says this, Let no one say he is being tempted when he is being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So here's what's happening here. Israel, like David, has repeatedly rejected the hand of the Lord. As we know, David, very clearly to all of Israel, is the Lord's anointed. But we also learned last week when Absalom rose up in revolt against his dad, it says that many in Israel followed him. Well, then Absalom died, and there was another man who came on the scene by the name of Shammai. He was from the house of Saul, and he did the same thing that Absalom did and revolted against David. And once again, it said, and many in Israel followed him so Israel like David has repeatedly turned from God and chosen to go their own way but God has been patient slow to anger and now he's going to use Israel's greatest enemy Satan to get their attention since we're already in first chronicles let's keep reading in verse 3 And Job said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went through all of Israel 
and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the number of the census and of all the people to David. And all Israel were 1,100,000 men and were, who drew the sword. And Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. Here we see the evidence of God's heart in the midst of David's sin. Even though he allowed Satan to tempt him to take a census, do you also see the mercy in the midst of it by providing Joab, who tried to convince him not to do it? (laughs) There's a passage in 1 Corinthians that says, There is no temptation which has come upon you but what is common to man. It says God is faithful, and he will provide a way of escape so that you are not tempted beyond what you are able, but in everything, provide a way out so that you can endure it. Well, Joab is God's divinely appointed way out for David. He tries to convince him that the Lord is in control, and you don't need to number Israel. But David overruled Joab, and so Joab follows through with the king's orders. Which brings us to the question, why is this census so sinful, right? Because if you look in Scripture, God actually ordains a census to be taken more than once among the people of Israel. So why is it that what David is doing here has such rebellion against God's original intent? Well, if you look at those times in which God instructs them to take a census, there are very specific requirements. So let me give you an example. Turn to Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. Exodus 30, verse 11. Exodus 30, verse 11. says, The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more. The poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord to make an atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for yourselves. So when a census was taken, the very specific requirement was that a ransom was to be taken in order to avoid the judgment of of a plague. That's why Joab warns David not to bring guilt upon Israel. He's talking about what is clearly this judgment of a plague. The ransom was God's way of reminding his people that ultimately they belong to him. And not because of their strength and number. And not because of all their skills and abilities. That ransom money was a memorial to the presence of God and the power of God among the people of God. But David was careless in his counting because 
He didn't take any of this into his consideration. In fact, his census was more about measuring what he accomplished instead of giving credit to God to what, for what he had accomplished through David. So turn back to 2 Samuel verse, chapter 24 and look at verse 9. 2, chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 9. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart troubled him, and after he had numbered the people, so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted foolishly. Okay, here's a great example of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. David is very sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit in his life. Nobody confronted him. Nobody said that what he had done was wrong, but he knew almost immediately in his heart that he had acted foolishly. And instead of covering it up or kind of justifying why he did what he did because he's king and he can make decisions, he was quick to repent because of his sin. Verse 10 is clear. He says, Oh Lord, please take away the sin of your servant. See, David knew God's word, and he knew that his actions did not align with God's heart. He was sensitive to the Spirit's conviction, and he was quick to repent of his sin. That's what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Look at how it continues in verse 11. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I may do to you. So, David, or so Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months from your foes when they pursue? Or shall you be three days in pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him, God, who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. David was in great distress. I'm sure he was. He had just been given three options and none of them were good, right? Seven years of famine, three years of being overrun by your enemy, or three days of being covered by pestilence in the land. But notice that David makes his decision based on putting himself upon the mercies of God and not relying on the mercy of man. I'm not certain about what his logic would be, but here are some of my thoughts. Maybe David thought that in response to a famine, Israel would flee. I mean, just think back to Jacob and his sons. When there was a famine in the land, they fled to Egypt. Maybe David knew that in his heart, that's the last thing that Israel needed to do. They didn't need to flee from God they needed to run to God that wasn't a good option being in pursuit from the enemies is certainly not a good job because we see the mercy when they killed Saul none right chopped his head off impaled him on the wall humiliated him and his family there are no mercy in the enemy those two options were 
quickly eliminated. David chooses the plague in hopes that he might find mercy in the midst of God's judgment. It's the only option, really, that they can't run from. Not to mention the plague was the judgment that God required according to Exodus chapter 30. David's decision was in alignment with God's word. He was under the conviction that that was the most likely place that they would see God's mercy. And so that's what he chooses. Look at verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the anointed time. And 70,000 men of Israel from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. So if you look closely, you'll see it. There is the mercy in the midst of God's judgment. Yes, 70,000 Israelites died because of the plague. But it could have been so much worse. God gave them mercy. He said to the angel, stop. That's enough. Go no further. God relented before the plague could run its course. If you look at the path of the plague from Dan to Beersheba, that's from north to south, and it's really about halfway through Israel. In fact, there is a very specific location identified as to where that plague stops. If you look at the second half of verse 16, and it says, And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. As it turns out, there's great significance to this location. and We'll get to that in a little bit. Let's continue reading in verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned. It is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. And David went up according to the word of God, and just as the Lord had commanded, and Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to, the, to thy servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be held back from the people. And Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing floor, the yokes of the oxen for the wood, everything, O king, Aruna gives to you. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aruna, no, but I surely will buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God, which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for the 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered a burnt offering and a peace offering. Thus the Lord was moved by his entreaty for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. 
The first thing we notice is that when the plague stopped, David didn't say, whew, glad that's over. Now let's all get back to life as usual. Not what he does. David was hoping for God's mercy, but when he experienced it, he certainly didn't take it for granted. In fact, David was grieved by the fact that those 70,000 people were killed by a plague that ultimately he was responsible for. He does take that responsibility upon himself. If you look at chapter 24, verse 17, he says, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wrong. But these sheep, these people of Israel, this is on me. God relented. But David would not take it for granted. Instead of seeing God's wrath continue, he basically says, Put your wrath on me. Me and my household. We bear the responsibility of sin. So God sends a man by the name of Gad, a prophet. And Gad instructs David to make a sacrifice. A sacrifice atoning for his sin and the sins of the people so that they would not bear the consequence. And that consequence would be taken by the sacrifice. So David goes to the owner of the land where the threshing floor was at. And when that man sees that King David is coming his way, he bows in respect. And he basically says, King, you can have anything you want. It's all yours. Whatever is mine, you can have. And David says, I will not offer a sacrifice that does not cost me anything. You see, obedience that costs nothing is worth nothing. So David pays a fair price in order to build the altar and make the sacrifice, a peace offering, a, a burn offering, a sacrifice that was acceptable to God because the plague was held back. There was mercy in the midst of God's wrath. Are you ready for something awesome? Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. This is so cool. God is amazing. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, Then Solomon, this is David's son, began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. The land that David purchased for the sacrifice will become the place where his son Solomon will build the temple on Mount Moriah. What we know today as the Temple Mount. If you go back to Genesis chapter 22, you'll find that when Abraham offers up his son Isaac, it's on Mount Moriah. This very same location. The very place where David offers this atoning sacrifice before the Lord. The very place where in years to come, Solomon would build his temple. So I think it's probably fair to suggest that this is a really important place in the eyes of God. It is a place that centers around sacrifice. A place where we repeatedly see the evidence of God's mercy in the midst of his wrath. Now, with so much attention 
centered on Mount Moriah, it should be no surprise to look to that place and find the cross. Mount Moriah is where Jesus was crucified for our sin. Very near to the place where Abraham was given a ram in order to spare his own son. God did not withhold his own son, but delivered him up for us all. In the very place where David offers an atoning sacrifice to to hold back the wrath of God, in that very place, Jesus offered a sacrifice of himself, accepting the wrath of God and the punishment that we deserve upon himself. In the very place where Solomon would build the temple, where the very presence of God would dwell, are the grounds in which the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory full of mercy and truth and grace. Can you see how beautifully, wonderfully all of Scripture points to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Mount Moriah was repeatedly a place of sacrifice where we see the evidence of God's mercy in the midst of wrath, and it all pointed to Jesus Christ as the ultimate solution for our sin. Now as we finish up this morning, I want to take what's significant about our passage this morning, and I want us to consider how this applies to our life, and I'm going to give you some verses that I would encourage you to spend some time on this week, all right? We're going to look at them this morning, and if you would, turn to 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Verse 19. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. See, God wanted the Israelites to know that they belonged to him. That's why he required the payment of a ransom as a memorial that they were God's people, set apart for God's purposes. And God wants you and I to know that the very same thing is true of us. We have been bought with a price, and that ransom was paid by Jesus. And our value is, Our worth in the eyes of God is measured by the magnitude of that sacrifice. We belong to God. And our lives should give evidence of that truth. We should live out of our identity as God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. Those who proclaim the excellencies of who, him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now over the last year, we've lost four men who I believe demonstrated what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. Glenn Sharp, Dick Courtney, Jan Whitaker, Chuck Walker. 
If you were a part of these funerals, you saw the churches filled with people who were impacted by their lives. People who had great respect and admiration for how they conducted their marriage, their family, their jobs. They were committed to becoming more like Christ. And so when people saw things in them that they admired and they respected, what they were seeing were the evidences of the Spirit of God at work in their life to bring glory to God. They were men after God's own heart. And and I hope that as we grieve the loss of these men, that we are compelled to carry on the evidence of their faith in our lives and our families. That we would be men and women after God's own heart. That we would demonstrate who we belong to with lives of sacrifice that give Him glory. So let me encourage you this week to be reminded who you belong to and the price that was paid to ransom you from sin's curse. Second passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. It says, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the New Testament reality of David's sacrificial commitment. Obedience that costs nothing is worth nothing. In this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise of God. We don't make a lot of posters. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen it on a t-shirt, okay? But it is a promise of God. In this world, you will have trouble. For those who intend to live godly lives, you will be persecuted. It will not be easy to faithfully follow Christ in a sin-cursed world. We live in a massive current of compromise in our culture. And if we do not cling to Jesus, rest assured, you will be swept away. You have to set an anchor in your relationship with the Lord. Which does not mean that you are required to live a perfect life. See, David's example is comforting to us in that regard. Being a man or, after, or a woman after God's own heart does not mean you live in flawless perfection. Remember what Wagner said? It's not perfection, it's direction. It's a heart that is inclined towards the Lord. A heart that is prone to wonder, but is quick to repent. So let me encourage you to, to cultivate a heart that wants to be in alignment with the heart of God. A heart that loves what God loves. Hates what God hates. A heart that is yielded to the Spirit. Committed to God's Word. Prone to wonder. Quick to repent. Abiding in Christ. Because apart from Him, we can do nothing. The last passage. Psalm 86, verse 5. Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good. And ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon your name. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you will never 
ever receive the punishment that you truly deserve. Ever. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you will never, ever be separated from the presence of the Lord. Ever. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That's a promise. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of our beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So may we have, may we be a man or a woman after God's own heart, living with lives that are inclined to the Lord, towards the Lord, prone to wonder, quick to repent, not perfection, but direction with hearts that are inclined towards the Lord so that people would look at our lives much like we have with the men that we've lost this year and say those were men who demonstrated what it looks like to put the goodness of God on display. And it looks good. It makes an impact on those around you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of your word. It's, it's like... It's like a piece of artwork or tapestry where things are, are woven together. And at first, it, 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 it may be hard to understand, but the more we see, the more we realize, ah, you have created a, an incredible picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It all points to him. He's the ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. He's the one that took on wrath. He's the one that allows us to be reconciled in our relationship with you. So Lord, I pray that as we hear your word this morning, that we would take it to heart. We, we are prone to wonder, but may we be quick to repent. And that means that if in this moment this morning, we know that the Spirit of God is convicting us of sin in our life, that we, like David, would own it. That we would take responsibility and that we would look to the Lord for the promise of forgiveness that is found in Him. Because you said, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So may we walk faithfully in a way that brings glory and honor to you. Being conformed to be more like Christ. So that when people see us and the attributes of our life, what they ultimately see is the person and work of Jesus. Father, thank you for the blessing of our time together and the comfort of your word. Amen. Have a great day.